Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. Good morning. Um, happy Sunday morning, everybody. Hello, my name is Kelly Taxter. I'm the director of the parish. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm really excited to be here with you for the first time. My first time, but its I didn't realize how uh, long the tradition of this fundraiser and this event was. It's our 37th Landscape Pleasures, which is quite an accomplishment. Um, I think over the years, all of you have created and supported a really unique tradition where the East End, um, our relationship to art, landscape, and ecology really come together. And I look forward to continuing and evolving this tradition in this weekend with all of you. Uh, before we move on, and because we are focused on the land, I want to acknowledge that the Parish Art Museum is situated on the traditional and ancestral territory of the Shinnecock people, who have stewarded this land through generations. Here, and I, I hope all of us strive to honor our relationship with the Shinnecock people and acknowledge the continued displacement of all indigenous peoples. Thanks to everyone for the work that you're doing today to bring focus to the landscape and our place within it. And I'd like to thank many people who have made this weekend possible, who have had the great pleasure of meeting finally for the first time in person these last few days. Our Landscape Pleasures co-chairs and steering committee, Lillian Cohen, Chris LaGuardia, Linda Hackett-Munson, Marty McClanahan, Stacy Petzl, Tony Piazza, and Dennis Schrader. Our sponsors, Lillian and Joel Cohen, Whitmores, the Cal Foundation, Linda and Russell Munson, LaGuardia Design Group, Summerhill Landscapes, Elizabeth and David Granville-Smith, Piazza Horticulture, Tish Rahill Gardening, our media partner, Hamptons Cottages and Gardens. Thank you, all of you. And a special thank you to Audrey and, Ma <coughs> Audrey and Martin Groose for hosting the lovely cocktail party last evening. And much gratitude to the garden owners who welcomed us yesterday. Richard Wines and Nancy Gilbert of Winsway Farms, Dennis Schrader and Bill Smith of the Landcraft Garden Foundation, Ugo Rondanoni and Connie Cross. It was an incredible, diverse uh, group of places, it was all of them equally um, and in their own special way, stunning. And finally, thank you to our extraordinary speakers this morning, Patrick Kalina and Deborah Nevins. I'm so excited to hear from you. And to kick that off, it's my pleasure to welcome Tony Piazza, who will introduce our first speaker. Good morning. Um, I met our next speaker for the first time this summer. She was tasked by a mutual client to design and oversee the mutual, I mean, the um, installation of substantial flower borders in less than a month and in August no, length, no less. We were both sort of apprehensive going into it because we hadn't worked together and the stakes were high, but needless to say, the result was stunning and I'm happy to have formed a new friendship in the landscape world. In the 25 plus years since starting her firm, Deborah Nevins and Associates, her, her accomplishments are truly remarkable. They include extensive residential commissions in the US, Caribbean, and Europe, which have been recognized for design excellence and sustainability. Public works encompass the Stavros Nikaros Cultural Foundation and Park in Athens, Greece, the campus expansion for the Fine Arts Museum in Houston, and the Pritzker Garden at the Arts Institute of Chicago, just to mention a few. 
Her background in education in art and landscape history fortify her work and writings which have been published in numerous books, journals, and periodicals. Her personal garden in East Hampton, which is a local treasure that has been opened to many tours, the approach to the garden is an unassuming Jeep track driveway, but once inside the gate, it features a skillful mix of formal axes and clipped formality offset with herbaceous whimsy, a true gardener's garden. A consummate professional, she's as comfortable making presentations to titans of industry, navigating public-private partnerships, as she is sitting on a stone wall with me, eating lunch in 90-degree heat, discussing the virtues of Hemorocallis Autumn Minaret. Please welcome me in a warm welcome for Deborah Nevins, AKA Debbie Nevins. Thank you all for coming so early this morning. Um, and uh, it's the first time I've been in a room with so many people uh, inside in a public venue uh, since the beginning of COVID. So it's a very happy um, event for me uh, too. And um, thank you, Tony, for that introduction. And it was really a great pleasure getting to know Tony, not only for his horticultural skills, but the way he ran the team and his wonderful uh, labor force. Um, it was really a great pleasure, and I hope I can work with him again. I admire his, uh, his, his, his great horticultural knowledge. So this, this lecture isn't just about the Niarchos Foundation in Greece, which was the highlight uh, in the uh, PR on the day, but I'm going to talk um, a little in the beginning about sort of the lodestars that are always in my head and other projects, and then I'll end with um, the discussion of uh, uh, the Niarchos Foundation. So I'll start with the first slide. Um, I came across this recently on the Long Island Railroad, uh, you know, Googling around uh, for plant jokes, which is something I've learned to do. Uh, <laughs> I can recite a few, but they're pretty corny. However, this, uh, this is Roz Chwast, who I think is a genius. So you can see what's going on on the left, the uh, table of contents for this imaginary uh, yard or magazine. But I think the, the words on the right, so you're outside, now what? Is something that I had to face when I started work. And uh, I'm always asking myself, now what? But I'm a little uh, more confident in now what now than 30 years ago or so. So I'm going to, this is a, a few images that I just always have in my head. This is a Helen Levitt photo that I really like. And in the time of George Floyd, I put it on my Instagram. If only this kind of joy between uh, diverse peoples could um, be the norm. But also, it's in emblematic of what I think about for landscape, that it's a place that, if it's well-designed, fosters social interaction and greater uh, intimacy among people. Are the lights low enough? Can you see the, they seem quite high to me. This is um, a photo by Cartier-Bresson. And it basically embodies everything that I think about 
in landscape. One, the idea that I just mentioned of great landscapes, great landscape spaces, um, fostering community and intimacy be between people and how is that achieved by space making and just minor small gestures here, the hedges, the path in the middle that creates these territories um, that create a, a, a kind of locus of intimacy among uh, in the greater whole. Um, this medieval manuscript, the Roman de la Rose, is emblematic of that too. You go from one space to another and your mind stops. Um, so then what, what stylistic forms and so forth did I look to as lodestars in finding a way to design? And um, uh, there are certain, in my mind, and you know, working with clients, um, forms in landscape that everyone likes, alleys of trees, orchards, people are always asking for that. Um, and I think that it's all about creating territory. It's a very simple sentence, and it's just elaboration on that. This is uh, uh, in Ireland, uh, outside Dublin, but you can see the hedgerows that divide the fields. And these hedgerows then in, in design become kind of archetypes of uh, a form in, in my mind. This is St. Paul's Waldenbury where the Queen Mother grew up outside London and it was designed by Geoffrey Jellicoe. So the house, well, you probably know he's a great English designer. Uh, the house is up on the top of this hill and then uh, it's a rolling landscape obviously and he um, made these paths with these tight clipped hornbeam hedges but within it um, he has natural plantings of, of trees, and it's sort of an intensification of um, uh, the natural world in tension with the design world. It's almost like a uh, Shakespearean uh, Garden of Eden or uh, Arden in, in, in Midsummer Night's Dream. So it's a, it's a, it's a rendering in your mind of um, that intensification, and I think that intensification makes you respect more um, uh, the natural world. It's just another uh, example. Or at Sissinghurst, where um, these hedges and this very simple gesture of the uh, stone path brings you from one realm to another. And um, it's almost like the mind goes before the feet so that your mind comes into another space and um, almost like in yoga where it's a physical um, relaxation and then a mental one. And so it brings you out into this other realm of the natural. Or in this example, which was one of the first where I started to think about this, this is Gregory Longs who used to run the botanical garden, his first garden in Otigo, New York. And just that simple gesture of the mowing with the, the sticks are his new uh, plantings of orchards 30 years ago. He doesn't live there anymore. But it connects you to the house and then the beyond. This is um, an image of, um, it, from Italo, a novel by Italo Cal, Cal, Calvino, um, The Baron in the Trees, where the baron, this young baron, uh, gets annoyed at his parents, goes up in the trees, and he never comes down. And so the whole novel is about living life in the trees. I recommend it. But the single tree and trees um, 
for me, also are markers of community. And in um, Tibet, there's something called a chowtra, where a single tree is in the middle of the village and around it are uh, stone benches, and that's where the village communes. So when you look in the, you know, the, the, the agricultural landscape, often a single tree is left um, as a marker. And it's a, a landmark, but it's also often a social gathering place. And so I started to think about using trees as sculpture. This is uh, Hidcote. Uh, and the first time I went there, nobody really talks about the fact that every um, pathway is marked by a tree. Um, and this is the entrance from the house. Uh, not a great slide, I'm sorry, but you go through this little grove of um, uh, trees, uh, white beams, and then you come upon this mound <clears throat> with um, this limestone set of stairs and urns and limestone, making it almost like the icon or the god of this garden. But it's also a space holder and a space maker because when the tree died, as you can see in this image, it's a whole different you know, experience. This is one of my projects in California where that ficus tree was there well before I was. And what I did was in building the pool, use these hedges to emphasize and articulate, um, uh, make you, you, you look at that tree much more than if it had just been an open space. Then of course the alleys of trees that um, we all love, but it's also for me about space making and territory. Here's an example in Tuscany. And another at Montesfont, the great rose garden. But that alley leads to this, and just that marker of those small, short, 18-inch limestone uh, walls uh, make that almost like a, a thread in knitting, connects you to this great tree in the landscape. Or groves of trees, uh, and this is an amazing example in Paris, where uh, Place um, Dauphine, where they, instead of just having a ring of trees or a central opening, it's uh, just a grid that almost creates a kind of remnant of a, a grove or a forest. And all of this came, you know, so much to my mind in visiting a long time ago the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth by Louis Kahn. So the entrance. Uh, from the back is through here, and uh, now it's quite changed. Renzo Piano did an addition, sort of where the audience is now. Um, but they're the Yopan hollies, but they're planted in a grid, and there's no open, uh, um, um, almost like the Plastophene, no uh, bigger gap to make a special opening to the door. So instead, you feel like you're coming through a grove of trees and your mind comes to another place. So in Sissinghurst, you know, we all admire the one color gardens, but it all comes from uh, way back, uh, William Robinson and Gertrude Jekyll admiring what happens in nature, if you think about it, um, the palettes of August versus the spring and so forth, but of course making the most wonderful um, gardens. Um, this is the garden of Ward Bennett, who you might know about it's no longer there, um, he, in, in Springs. And I knew him, and I was so touched by the way he made a kind of meadow of not totally um, native plants, but a lot of Rosa rugosa, 
ferns and, of course, other things, but uh, it was a great revelation to me. And here, Nicole de Vesnien, in it's a kind of iconic garden, where she took the lavender and Santolina, which grow in Provence naturally, uh, and, and objectified it um, and made uh, this really amazing um, space. So I'm going to show you a few uh, places that I designed and, um, and then talk about the Nearcos Foundation. So this is in Libertyville, uh, Illinois, outside Chicago. And it's a 600-acre farm, but of course I didn't design the, acre, the 600 acres, about 20 acres around. The house is from 1938 or so. It's um, a butterfly plan house, and there are two entrances from the, the main road. Uh, so I made these alleys of trees. This is a barn complex and a pond, and you come into this motor court, and then you come into the sort of butterfly plan. So one of the, the issues was what, how to you know, work all this out, how to connect with the agricultural space and the woods. Uh, this is the site before. This is the before laying out the garden. And this is what the house looked like uh, before. Uh, this is an aerial view showing you the house, that butterfly plan. And then I designed these uh, formal gardens getting, um, this is a fountain and place to sit, vegetable garden and a kind of side garden here. And that's the motor court that I mentioned. And we'll talk later about this connection between the agricultural land, the forest, and um, the house. Uh, so this is coming in. This is an L.A. of Greenspire lindens that I planted coming from the barn to the house, the motor court, and now the butterfly plant house looking out. Uh, and there's a pergola t to the side that I designed. Um, and it was interesting to try to figure out a paving pattern because of the plan view of the, the house. And so we worked with this great mason. I didn't want sort of crazy paving, but he and I were able to work together. This is um, Midwestern Lannanstone uh, to make these big pieces that take the, um, the form. So this is looking out to the uh, field, and this is the first arborvitae hedge through which you go towards, um, and you can see it from the, an aerial view, into the vegetable garden. And every, of the, every one of these rooms has vistas out to um, the landscape. So as you move from the house into the woods, here's a tennis court, um, uh, th this head, this, sorry, this uh, retaining wall and um, uh, steps make that transition between the house and um, the field beyond. So then there's this, there were these groves of scotch pine and I um, planted uh, ornamentals that bring you through uh, to the woods. And the tennis court is surrounded by uh, Rosa Ragosa and lilac. Then I wanted to make a meadow, but the place was so big I couldn't make a meadow uh, with, um, with perennials such as these. So instead, just the simple act of mowing uh, created this uh, beautiful meadow, which I've done in several places over a few years 
the um, plants come in and you have that. And there's a native pr uh, set of prairie trees which they, uh, under which they burn every couple of years. In the middle of the forest, um, I designed this labyrinth with this tree in the middle. So as you get further out, the suburbs were beginning to encroach on this house. So we decided to start a native forest of our own. These were originally one-inch caliper trees. And about 15 years later, they're, they're quite big. And here again, we just mow, and the meadow um, uh, happens. This is a, an estate in Texas. So one of the, the parts of the description of the talk is working in zones uh, 4 to 10. So uh, Texas is, uh, well, at least Houston, is zone um, 8, 9. This is a French house, completely different than the other house or others you're going to see soon, uh, on an H plan. This is the street, and it was bound. We, we planted this um, aerial hedge so that you wouldn't see the house from the street. This is a pool house and a pool, um, uh, a, a kind of tent based on the metal tents in Stockholm at Haga. And then as you get further out into the landscape, it gets more and more um, informal. So this is the entryway. Um, the house with this reflecting pool uh, where we placed this mayol, and I turned her to the side so that no one would ever get the straight-on view, it, and it was more dynamic. Through, you go out here and you go into where um, it gets more informal. Uh, this is a grove of crepe myrtles I planted instead of an alley. I had originally started thinking about just two straight rows, and it became more dynamic. Um, as, a, as an irregular planting pattern. So now we're coming through to here. Um, there's a grove of southern magnolias and this uh, circular space bounded by um, hollies, Burford holly. Uh, they collect art, there's a kusama. And as you um, come through, I just define the space with this um, small band of paving. And through each of these uh, openings you see to other rooms. This is a de Kooning uh, on one end. This is a very interesting project for me because it's so tightly spaced in Bridgehampton. It's 90 feet wide and about 600 feet long. This house existed. This is the street, Maple. And um, there was an incredible butternut. You'll see that in a minute. And a guest house here, a little, a little cottage. So this is what it looked like before. This is the uh, property line here and the property line there. And there's that, I'm taking the photo from the house, and that's a, a little cottage. So I decided how to make this um, space more dynamic. This is the garage. Uh, you come in here, there's an entry court here, and then you walk through the main house. You'll see what that is in a minute, and to the cottage. But then along the side, I created this other space uh, so that the circulation was more interesting and also um, more dynamic gardens. This is the front where we train the wisteria as windows, uh, suggested by this old photo of a, of a 19th, uh, early 20th century house. It's the entrance. Um, so here's the side garden that I mentioned uh, that would be here. So as you move through the lawn, let's see if I can get this right, yeah. Um, 
you have the, this the property line is here, you have this other interesting way to get um, through to the back that's looking back at the garage, um, planted with uh, late August plants. And then we come to this back space with the pool and pool house. But between that on the side, I designed this um, small reflecting pool. And that's looking back where that long path was. So this is the butternut that was there. And the tree was the centerpiece for the pool to be on axis with the pool. And then instead of a pergola or other shade structures, I planted these locust trees. And that's looking out you know, from the pool house. So this is a residence in Long Island, very small house. Uh, you come in from the street here, um, Espalier, Linden on the side. Um, and then uh, this is the entrance planted with plume poppies. Looking back at um, the native trees that we kept. Uh, so this is a white oak and a trimmed um, native cedar that was there. And I like that tension between the formal and um, the native planting. So, and then you come through, the back of the house is planted with six uh, plane trees and you come through to the flower garden but to a big lawn here. So essentially there are two uh, courtyards that bound the house. This is the path into the um, flower garden, which is there, and that with these trees. So I kept um, the native, you know, the, the trees that were there, this was basically a forest, and used them as markers um, in the landscape. And then out in the outer reaches, uh, just mowing paths, as I showed you in that um, uh, house in Libertyville, creates these meadows. So this was the first uh, project I did with Renzo Piano, um, uh, who was the architect for the New Yorkos Foundation. It's in Aspen, looking at the Pyramid Peaks. Um, and it was the key of just the native planting, Aspen and uh, Gamble Oaks, that really was my palette. That's the Gamble Oak. And um, this is now looking back at Pyramid Peak over uh, the meadow that just has a cattle. This is the site before anything happened to it. And this is the construction. Renzo Piano, uh, this is a very, uh, it shows you how steep this was. Here's the house. You have to come up this driveway. There's a pond here that's used for geothermal and a barn complex. This shows you the amount of construction that uh, you know, had to happen to make this house. And this illustrates the grading problems, which I'll talk about later, so this is a little more um, close-in view of the plan. Uh, I'll talk about these walls in a minute. Um, so you come up here, you come there, and there are two bedrooms on the second floor, but the major part of the house is on one floor. Looking out, this is the barn, and here's the house. And Renzo Piano said that he wanted the house to feel like it had flown down like a butterfly on the land. So you can imagine the um, disruption disruption to the land making this house and that barn and the road. And we planted 1,500 very small aspens um, to make that happen. Um, so I'll talk to you about these walls and how we achieved the integration into the landscape and these courtyards here in a minute. So that shows you what Renzo called the flying decks and flying roofs uh, of the house. 
And again, the symbology he wanted was that it just landed there. So all these aspens that you see, and this is a gamble oak, um, were planted uh, very small trees. And just let, we just did mowing and so forth makes this meadow. This is coming up to the house. And then the other thing that I did, the, the, uh, the way the house is organized in the decks, there are these uh, inserts of courtyards and um, spaces between decks like this. So I brought the aspens directly in between these spaces to make it feel like it had um, just landed as Renzo wanted. And there are some interior courtyards which we again planted with the native aspens. So I had to mediate how do you get on the outside from one level to the next. And so I designed these um, sliding walls and um, you see it here and you come in through this gate to go up to the next level um, here. And this is just a three foot wide stair made with local stone. And I had thought, oh, this is really too narrow. I made a mistake. But I later realized I didn't make a mistake because again, it intensifies that sense of going from one place to another. So this is, then I planted almost like um, bonsai aspens against the upper wall. And there's um, steps, concrete steps that get you to the woods. And it's, they make these beautiful patterns of shadow on the concrete. So this is the Nearchos um, Foundation in um, Athens. And you can see that it's, uh, it's in the, if you, if you know Athens, it's um, in a place called Kalitheia, which means in Greek, beautiful view, except there was no view. And it was kind of a, a joke in the office uh, that there was no view, even though that's what it was called, Kalitheia. Um, and uh, it was the first port of classical Athens, actually. If you know um, Athens, Piraeus is that way. So this is looking out at, from um, downtown Athens, looking at uh, the roof of the building. So this is what it was. It was a totally flat space. Oh, you could see it's right by the, the water, but there's a 12-lane highway that separates uh, the site from uh, the water. This is during construction, but it was a racetrack at one point, an ammunitions factory. It was basically flat. And this is looking out. You can see it's in a dense urban uh, place. And one of the things it did was um, to connect the paths in the uh, site, um, it's 40 acres, with the grid of Athens. So the, next to the site is this esplanade. This is the before photo, um, which was built for the Olympics. It goes over uh, to the water uh, over the highway. And it's not very nicely designed, but it will be part of what I'll be talking about in a minute. Um, here you can see it. You can see the, how distressed the land was um, for where the, the project is. And this is now just an overview uh, of building the site. Um, this is the plan. There's a, a, a canal we designed. This is the esplanade with pine trees. We'll talk about that later. Um, a main lawn for people to hang out. Uh, but all these uh, north-south axial uh, alleys mesh with the grid of Athens. But Renzo had this idea. The original planning, which had been done by a planning group, was to have the, it's an opera house and the National Library of Greece, have it uh, all on the flat 
land and then a park in between. Renzo said, no, let's first of all raise the, the view. So he, um, the, the op and, and also these buildings, the Opera House and the uh, National Library don't want a lot of light except at the entrance. So he, he said, let's make a park that goes over the building. So this is the National Library and these are green roofs that go over the um, library and a garage. And then there's a lower part here, which is a labyrinth I designed. So it raises 30 meters from zero over here up to this top. The roof is a solar roof that generates most electricity for um, the opera house and library, except when they're having an opera performance. Um, the, so these skylights are within the library. Um, and everything in the design has a, a kind of environmental and ecological uh, component. So for example, this, um, it's a very low-lying part of Athens and there's often a lot of flooding. So this canal is actually lower than the entrance to the building and obviously lower than this esplanade. So if there are huge storms, it acts as a catch basin. My inspiration besides the Parthenon was uh, the planting by this amazing person named Picciones, who designed the planting at the Acropolis in the 60s. And uh, I can talk about that at length, but I'm not here. But basically, he planted only uh, olives, native oaks, and cypress. So he looked to the native landscaping to make this um, landscape up. Renzo wanted the... Um, building as an aspen to integrate with the landscape. And uh, he said, we've got to have hanging vines. So we designed the perimeter walls with channels in which I planted um, these uh, 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 prostrate rosemary. So here you see the grade change from here to 30 meters up. And then there's both ramps that bring you up or stairs and uh, side entrances into the, into the um, space. And uh, later on, I'll talk about these stairs, how you get from the canal to the esplanade. So this is building um, the, the site. And uh, from here, and I'll, I'll talk about the grading in a minute, but what this shows you in this aerial view is it's quite sloped, sometimes 8%. And um, so I had to make these seating places so that people could stop and enjoy the landscape. And this example, this shows you the grading. So the chartreuse at the bottom is basically 2% grading. And it gets higher and high, more steep and more steep until you get to the darkest green, which is roughly 20%. This is the garage roof. Um, so here's some of the grade changes that are uh, exemplified by the colors. And this is the park, an aerial view. So um, when I designed it, uh, uh, some people complained and said, well, this isn't Greek at all. Um, and why do you have these diagonal paths? Well, I had the diagonal paths, one for beauty's sake, in the sense that you get more interesting vistas this way than straight up and down. But also, because some of the grades are 8% or more, it's not handicapped accessible. So anywhere in the park, if you, have, if you need universal accessibility, you can go across at less than 5% and then go up uh, and then across. So um, it speaks to that also. 
this is the plan showing you the um, esplanade on the left, the canal, uh, these diagonal paths, the grid of Athens here. This area we'll talk about later. It's um, a low point and a, a kind of splash fountain. This is the labyrinth. And everything in the design, as I said, has another function. So many of these spaces are also um, drainage uh, catch base, catchments, in a way, for um, the very heavy storms that happen in this low-lying and, and the water collection in this low-lying area. This is the green roof over the garage and then the uh, green roof over um, the library. Uh, Renzo Piano is always looking at things poetically. So this was, had to do with various grading issues getting you to the top. But um, he said when he saw this, he said, oh, that's like water flowing over and down a hill. So this is uh, showing the grades again. But the blue is the low area that catches the water. So it's slightly lower than the street. And this shows you the power source that goes from the roof, the, sun, the solar roof, um, into the mechanical area of the building. This is building um, the site, uh, the various areas that we have in the garden. So the Mediterranean garden, which I'll show you, is one of the more um, intensely planted. And that's this area here. Uh, these, this is just statistics of the park. We planted uh, 1,500 trees, 320,000 shrubs, 164,000 plugs, and uh, a green roof of 7,000 square meters. Part of my inspiration for all the planting, and actually a source of the plants, because we had to propagate all these plants, was the garden of Olivier Philippi and his nursery near Montpellier. And he is really, if he was American, he should get a MacArthur. Uh, his books on uh, drought-tolerant planting are incredible. You should get them. So he gave us mother plants for Greek plants that we couldn't even ob obtain in Greece, and then we propagated from those plants. So this is the park now um, as it's planted, all, uh, uh, alleys of olives to give you shade, markers of um, cypress uh, at the end of various axes. That's the roof, the solar roof, the diagonal paths, and then I often would use um, an olive or a carob tree. So the main trees are almond, carob, uh, cypress, uh, Italian cypress, olives, and almonds, and some red buds and pomegranate. So uh, here you can see the planting. I'll just go through a few more of these slides. Lavender and euphorbias. Uh, this is one of my favorite plants. It's called Sarcopaterium. And um, farmers put it around their fields because it, it's amazing because in the summer, and it's not happening here because it's irrigated, which is unfortunate, it loses its um, leaves to protect itself from the drought. And then it, in the cooler months, it, the leaves come back. Coronilia, which is a native Ebonis cretica, uh, Flomus, which you probably are familiar with, uh, various Dianthus, thyme, uh, Santalina. This is a beautiful plant called Hertia. And going back to the plan, I'll show you some other areas, uh, the labyrinth and the green roof. So here's the labyrinth that is in a lower space. You can see it from the green roof here, the garage, the library green roof. And it we tried to have places for a lot of different kinds of activity um, in the park. So this is the green roof with the um, 
skylights into the library, looking back over it. And I had to decide what to plant, and of course, sedum would come first in your mind, but I wanted it to look more like Greece. I wanted this garden to, or park to speak Greek. So I had been at this botanical garden, the Diomedes Botanical Garden in Athens, and I saw this and I said, that's the solution. So we collected um, native grasses from around Attica, and uh, there's a funny story where uh, the contractor came to the meeting with a box and he said, see this box, it's worth 50,000 euros. And that meant that he had to propagate and plant and obtain the seeds for the green roof and it cost 50,000 euros. So this is, I integrated lower sections of the green roof with this amazing plant I love called lentiscus and um, native grasses and flomus. But as you get closer up towards um, the actual roof, it's just um, native um, grasses. And then the question was, how did you make this seem natural but have a planting plan? So this is the planting plan um, in almost like a petty point pattern with uh, the different sorts of grasses integrated. Uh, just showing you the technical part of green roofs. This is called a platypus system. So they're anchors that anchor down the tree because you can't use traditional staking methods. So this is planting. First you have to put in the substrate, uh, then the irrigation. These are the small plugs that we had propagated all over Greece. Planting it, um, they use a, a kind of uh, pumice mulch. Uh, we had to bring up the plants and uh, soil you know, by crane in these bags. And then I had to try to train them to uh, prune these grasses because occasionally they have to be pruned in a way that was natural and not like a hedge. Um, so this shows you the, the, the grade change a little bit more dynamically of the, um, of the park as it goes up. Here's Renzo. Um, and here you see the, 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 the way it slopes up. He wanted it, uh, yeah, okay. And here in this drawing, uh, various cut sections through the canal, the esplanade, and the park. So down at one point, there, there, it's not very steep. Um, and another here, it's quite a great change between the entrance and the top of the esplanade. And so it was a very, um, mm, shall I say, not pretty slope, which is the blue. And then, so we decided to redo the whole thing so it was a, um, a gentle curve up to the top. And then we designed these stairs that integrate from almost no stairs at all as it follows the curve of the grade to very, um, uh, a lot of steps, as you can see in this drawing. And here's the canal now. Uh, and they use it for uh, boating for kids. This is it empty, so there's a big drain in the middle. Um, and this is the, the splash fountain I mentioned, but as you can see, there are small retaining walls and steps all around it. So again, it holds water if there are uh, torrential rains. I'm just going to show you a few of the pictures of gathering the trees uh, for the park. We had to, it was a two-year planting process, so we um, had a nursery nearby, so whenever we needed trees, we would just get them from there and not uh, these are, are plane trees, they're, they're uh, oriental planes. And these are olives which are bounded by, which you might 
no um, air pots, which uh, are, uh, you'll see this in a minute. They're plastic and they have little holes in them. And if you're holding trees for a long time, the roots get the air, but it also cuts the roots so that the roots don't circle themselves and become um, contained too, too much in, the, in, the, in a pot, for example. And this is planting the olives, but they use something called sweet wire. So like our wire baskets, except this is a very thin wire, which they don't take off, and it disintegrates in the ground. And this is showing you all the propagation that we had to do for the park. Um, we also did playgrounds uh, for different age groups, but I like the best, uh, the ones for the little children up here. And you come to it through, um, the, 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 the playground equipment is from Richter Spielgarata in Germany, and their product is all about interaction. Uh, they make everything so the children, no motors, children have to make everything work themselves. So they, like in this instance, they learn about the dynamics of um, pumping and water flow and gravity. And you get to the children's playground by playing uh, by these little uh, seesaw animals. The whole park is very well used, as you can see in this example. Uh, I also, uh, Richter makes these uh, musical instruments that are interactive. So you have to, I'll go back, you have to physically interact with these uh, metal uh, uh, grids and then they make music. And here kids are able to turn this big rock because of the way it's balanced. They even have concerts for thousands and thousands of people. Uh, and this is probably the last slide of um, the Olympics the, uh, for, for kids. Um, this is actually not. I um, just wanted to quickly show you the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston with a building by Stephen Hole, two buildings, this one and the Glassell School of Art, where um, we had to integrate an incredible um, garden by Noguchi. He designed it, and the sculpture isn't by Noguchi, but integrated between this Kinder exhibition building and the Glassell School of Art. This is the Noguchi Garden, the Cullen Garden, perhaps you've been to Houston. And I think he was inspired by the planetarium in Jaipur. He uses these amazing uh, walls to make spaces within the hole, but you never feel cut off. This was the old school, which they tore down, and then he designed these mounds within the um, space. So this is his drawing for uh, that, and this is the Glassell School of Art. And what I did was um, I integrate, I, I took that key from those mounds, and it's also actually a green roof, and made um, mounds, and this is Anish Kapoor at one end, so that uh, I created a, a sort of small space within a space of 300 feet long that gives you a sense of intimacy and, and shade. And um, this is the paving. And it was also inspired by Noguchi, where in that space, although you're using very kind of corporate um, types of, of, of paving, uh, as you change your circulation route, the paving pattern changes. And there's a kind of subtle psychological integration of um, your, your, your wayfinding. And then the side of the building is used for projection. And this is the rendering, because it's only just finished, from the kinder building 
to the Noguchi, we had to open up some walls and I placed this um, myole there. And then this is looking through from the construction site uh, to the Noguchi space. Thank you.